Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. It's things like welcoming divergent thinking, thinking that's different to ours, not allowing it. It's not about allowing divergent thinking because then it implies there's something wrong. It's actually inviting it. So what might you be thinking that's different to everybody else or that we haven't thought of yet? Hey, thanks for listening. It's Adam Murray here. One of my personal focuses for this year is good thinking, how to do my best thinking, how to create habits, how to learn as well as I can and give myself the environments and the context where I can do my best thinking. I also want to create this for other people as well in some of the groups that I facilitate and in the conversations that I have to allow people to do their best thinking. A lot of this came from a workshop that I did last year with this week's guests and it's been great to put some of those ideas in practice and I thought I wanted to talk with her because I found her facilitation to be pretty amazing and the work to be really important as well. So I'm Adam Murray and in this episode I'm talking with Candace Smith on the subtle disruption of good thinking. Candace, it's excellent to be sitting here talking with you today and doing some good thinking, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Adam. It's gorgeous to be here with you. Mm. Where are we? Where have you chosen for our conversation and why have you chosen this place? We're at the Studley Park Boathouse and it's a place of regeneration for my husband and I. We've been in Melbourne for over a year and a half and it's 10 minutes away from where we live and it's got the most incredible selection of trees and river and bird life. Mm. It always stuns me how that's so accessible in a city. So can't really get enough of the the natural spaces in Melbourne. Mm. Yeah. You said it was a regenerative space? Is that mm. what you called it? Yeah. yeah. You, do you find that that's something that you need regularly? Tell me about regeneration and nature for you. Mm. Well, it's a combination maybe of the, looking around, it's the different shades of green. Like how many different shades of green can there be? And I don't know where I read the research somewhere saying that just having these different gradations of green is so healing Mm. for us and is rewiring our brains. So... I didn't know that when I was first drawn to coming to this particular neck of the woods, but that does feel like what what happens for me when my brain is racing and not just a space for me to draw on and be regenerated, but my assumption is also that the surroundings maybe get regenerated through our attention by us being present to our surroundings, our surroundings can also be regenerated. Yeah. Mm. That's a thought that I've come across recently in a book called Presence. Have you heard of this book called Presence? And it 
talks a bit about theory you, you know, theory yes. you, and yes. I think it's from some of the founders of that idea, that framework. And they, there's a interesting thought in there about without humans, what will become of the ape? Hmm. I guess it's flipping, and like they're very environmentally conscious and they understand clearly the state of the globe and there's this thinking, well, a human's going to survive. But then they flip that idea on its head and think, well, it's not just about humans. Like it's about the whole ecosystem and what will happen. Obviously, we're harming the ecosystem, but if humans no longer existed, what impact may that have on the ecosystem as well? Yeah. Yeah. Our capacity to impact life through giving attention and I love that you are invoking um, theory you and presence at the start of our conversation I just remembered that my very first business name was presence and was it? Yeah. it was after reading reading that book and it's always danced with um, Sharma and the presencing work and theory you about the last 15 years. So I love that that's kicking us off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, tell me some more about that then. What's your journey? How did you discover that? And Mm. how did that resonate with you? Yes. So I was doing a coaching qualification of a period of a year back in South Africa in Cape Town at a coaching school where the faculty were deeply, deeply steeped in integral theory. Mm. And before that had worn a totally different hat, I'd been in publishing and realized I needed to be applying myself in a different way other than sitting behind a desk and had been publishing beautiful research that was informing policy in post-apartheid South Africa. It was a new democracy. And so really important economic policy transition, uh, service delivery transition, all of these really impactful pieces. And I felt that there was something missing in the research that we were Mm. publishing. And that had to do with the human being and the healing of our our human beings in South Africa post-apartheid and was very fortunate to be guided to this particular coaching fraternity who were spearheading integral coaching. So the work of Ken Wilber was strongly informing the school. And Theory U and the presencing approach was one of our readings, being an integral approach. We were looking at a whole range of different lenses and presencing was one of them and I actually chose to compare (laughs) in my final paper, I think my coaching paper, we had to compare our coaching model that we were working with and mine was the, the thinking environment approach to coaching with another model and I chose to use Theory U. Yeah. So that's what I've meant about I've been dancing with it, dancing with it and it feels very, very resonant. And still now here in Australia, there's such a huge community of Theory U practitioners and the yeah. U Lab. I don't know if you know no, that. No, I don't. Oh, right. So there's a huge global online learning community that is going through something called U Lab, 
which is, I think it's a three-month course that you can do and be steeped in theory you online, but also in-person meetup groups. So mm. communities are getting sprouted all around the world. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to talk about both of those theories, actually, because we came across each other through, well, there's a little bit of history there. Like you <laughs> sent me a message on LinkedIn a long time ago that I didn't see. And I saw a post of yours a couple of years later about some work that you were doing with a bunch of agile practitioners mm-hmm. around the thinking environment. And then that led me to noticing that message and then <laughs> doing a course with you late last year. Yeah around the thinking environment. So we can talk a bit about both of those ideas and how you do dance with them. Before we do, perhaps thinking about South Africa in particular and Mm -hmm. what happened and the transformation and the healing, were you involved in that? Were you involved with groups going through those kind of processes and helping them through that at all? Mm -hmm. So I was doing my post-grad in 1994 when the new democracy officially came into being and so I was in a university kind of milieu and was based at a historically black university which was the heart of active anti-apartheid activism the University of the Western Cape and so my lens at the time for transformation was looking at rewriting post-colonial identities. So it was very much from a literary theory kind of perspective and a feminist theory perspective and, and tutoring students around that. And it sparked something in me to rewrite I think my own script which was I'd always thought I'd be working only with with books and maybe academia and that that was my trajectory but as I was doing my master's and writing about what reinscriptions of provisional identities or some such pretentious title (laughs) that I had started interrogating my own identity and then was present to this need to listen to people's stories more. So I'd been attracted to stories in the written form and then realized, oh, well, they're real life, oral stories in each person to be ignited and heard and listened to and documented. And I didn't know what form that would take at all, but in the end... It took the form of of coaching initially, one-on-one coaching, and then facilitation. And that was in the space of bringing in more diversity and equality in the workplaces in South Africa. Yeah. And having, yeah, mentors who were steeped in presencing equality was yeah quite a extraordinary privilege to be taught 
five people who had been at the coalface of the liberation struggle, even exiled. Yeah. Mm. So my first teacher in the thinking environment had been in, in political exile in the UK for many years and then returned to South Africa post post change. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Did you discover the thinking environment around the same time as Thierry Yu? Mm. Or was it one before the other? One before the other, I think. First, the thinking environment I was introduced to and probably not too long after that um, was delighted to discover this very aligned mm. body of work too. Mm. Yeah. I'm not that familiar with yes. either of them, but one of the key elements is something I think you've already talked about, which is deep listening. Can you talk a little bit about that and about perhaps even in, the, particularly in the environment that you initially d- discovered it in that time in South Africa and you know, the impact that had on people? Mm. Thank you. Yes, so what comes to mind is the ultimate example of a deep listening process that we could have drawn on even more, but as, a, as an example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took place and that was immediately after a project was dismantled and an attempt to bring some form of healing and closure for the apartheid atrocities. And the main model of that was people being listened to without any pushback, judgment, defense, being listened to in this deeply honoring way. And what was unleashed at a collective level, because it it wasn't possible for large numbers of people to go through that process, but the collective healing that took place just because the intention was to honor the both sides of, of the story and that time, the mid-90s, was then a time of incredible possibility and to have that be mainly catalyzed by just listening. I'm doing inverted commas because there's nothing just listening about um, honoring somebody's truth in that way. Mm. It was profound. So it was a sense of being privileged to come into contact with the thinking environment, which is mainly about our capacity to, to listen in a way which allows another to access their own thoughts, feelings, way of being, wisdom, without us crashing into it, and what might then be unleashed. So in a way, you could say that TRC was the ultimate thinking environment. What was perhaps lost was that there wasn't a mechanism for that to be rolled out further. So unfortunately, the deep listening did not continue at scale. Mm. And we've seen the impact of that. Mm. Yeah. So you've, Nancy is, Klein. Nancy Klein, Klein yeah. is the founder yeah. of the Thinking Environment, and it's emerged out of a bunch of research and observation that she's done. Yeah. What are the key 
things that she did discover mm. in her work. Mm. It was pretty liberating what she discovered while observing learners in a school that she started for, and was over a period of, of many years. She discovered that it was how we are treating one another while we are doing our thinking and feeling that's having the most impact on the quality of that thinking. So the learners in the school were were profoundly impacted by if they were being listened to in a particular way. Mm. They were profoundly impacted by if they were being treated as equal in the ability to think for themselves as, as others or whether or not they were treated as maybe not so hot because you have a particular group identity or the grades that you have or haven't achieved, but rather that you get treated as being capable of thinking for yourself regardless of any of that. Things like not competing with the person we're listening to. It sounds wonderful, right, to do it in theory, and how can we do that in practice? Let's not be competing with somebody as we listen to them, and let's not be competing with ourselves as we are listening to ourselves, this kind of internal judgment of, of everything that we're saying, and we talk about that as, as encouraging ourselves and encouraging another, giving courage to somebody to access the next courageous wave of thinking or feeling. It's things like welcoming divergent thinking, thinking that's different to ours, not allowing it. It's not about allowing divergent thinking because then it implies there's something wrong. It's actually inviting it. So what might you be thinking that's different to everybody else or that we haven't thought of yet? It's things like being welcoming of feelings in our feelings-phobic world. We need to sometimes feel what we are needing to feel before we can articulate our thoughts um, rather than spending all of our brain function to suppress our feelings. Mm. Being able to express that in an appropriate way, in context appropriate, and then be able to articulate our thoughts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think in doing the two-day course that I did, one of the, I mean, there were many things that came out, but one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is the pressure that it removed from me when I was doing my own thinking to have it all clearly thought out before I said it and, mm. and to be thinking about how to defend people off from interrupting me by not pausing or saying something clever up front, but having the time to, and knowing that the group, and there was about a dozen of us, would be giving me their full attention, allow me to work through whatever thoughts or feelings or pauses or blanks that I was going through to access my best thinking about that as through that process mm. as well. And that was a number of different feelings in doing that. And one of them was being actually loved and appreciated by the group and going through that process. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yes, thanks for presencing that, that aspect, the appreciation 
aspect of, of what we're needing to really thrive, that that's a key piece as well. <laughs> Just highlighting appreciation. <laughs> that in order for us to really be able to think and feel at our best, we need to be practicing almost a ratio of appreciation to what we call criticism, mm. a five to one ratio of appreciation to criticism. And that's got to do with our neurochemistry being set up for our best thinking through having appreciation because of our hangover from our caveman days, we are wired to be offsetting threat. So about 70% or more of our brain is preoccupied with offsetting threat. And so in a thinking environment, if we know that we are being explicitly appreciated genuinely and we find ways to weave that in to our meetings, into our one-on-ones, and like you experienced, Adam, the explicit acknowledgement of what we noticed in your way of being or your in your thinking then enabled you to keep going as opposed to not receiving that and being shut down. So it's not a feel-good factor that we're so interested in. All of these elements, of course, do feel good, but it's not the feel-good factor that we're so interested in as in, so what's the quality of the thinking and the feeling and the being when these elements are present? Mm. Mm. It's in starting to practice this, some of the ideas over the past couple of months, it's been startling to reflect on how much good thinking is missed and that I have missed as well. So I've run a couple of sessions. One of them was like a group session, which included people like CEOs and it included all roles in an organisation. And I set up some ground rules around, you know, not interrupting, which is some of the, one of the key things, making eye contact, one of the key ways that we can create good thinking environments. And the tendency of people who are in positions of responsibility and I suppose power to forget those rules and assume their normal mode of interrupting and having their say. And it was fascinating. And, but in that, also seeing the opportunity that people who perhaps normally didn't have that much of a chance or didn't feel as comfortable speaking up in that kind of environment, having, say, a three-minute period, along with everybody else who had a three-minute period to share their thoughts on a particular topic and the, the divergent thinking that came out and the insight that came out through that as well and the mm. surprise, in some cases, from the people in the room that normally the ones doing all the talking mm-hmm. was amazing. Mm. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. And it's um, immediately applicable because it's not that we are doing anything radically new. This is how we as human beings know we need to be treating one another and this is how we all want to be treated. But there is something in our culture now that is so urgent Mm. and driven by so many limiting assumptions around where we need to be placing our, our attention and it's not on how I'm listening to you right now, um, that is tripping us up badly. So we have these values on the wall 
around equality and diversity and inclusion. And we have really good intentions, but how do we make that a reality? And so there are many beautiful bodies of work. The thinking environment is one of them that is making explicit so what are those things that occur when, when there's a fabulous meeting and we go, oh, that was a fabulous meeting. We really we nailed it. But what was actually occurring then? What were the conditions that were in place? So to not just get lucky and let that occur, mm. but get really intentional. And so that's the gift of Nancy Klein's observations and our observations as the time to think faculty with her for the last 15 years is noticing. So what are those explicit agreements and behaviors that we can be applying in a one-on-one and in a meeting. The research and statistics are shocking around the quality of meetings and people's losing the world to live because of the poor quality meetings that we sit in. So if we can just shift a few seemingly simple yet profound practices for doing that, it's it's really going to make our lives a lot happier <laughs> yeah. and obviously productive. Mm. Mm. Why do you think this is particularly important now, given the context that we're in? So looking around us right now on our, our global landscape, the quality of thinking that is occurring would not doesn't imply that there are thinking environments happening, right, in our boardrooms, in our halls of power, government, the decisions that we are making that is impacting our planet, our life, and not just humans, would imply that we haven't created the conditions for us to be doing really our own independent thinking. So by thinking environment, we mean, what do we really, really, really think in our heart of hearts? And can each person access that and articulate that? If we were to all have the opportunity to stop and really, really access, do we really feel and think that we are on the right track right now with the decisions we're making? What would be different if we stopped and truly listened? rather than assumed there's no time to really stop and think we've just got to be reacting. And somebody that comes to mind who is creating a thinking environment is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And she has stopped and listened to her people. And she talks about the younger generation saying that they're not only interested in financial well-being, they are equally or if not even more activated around mental and social well-being. So she's got really interested and listened and that's the key quality of a good listener is getting really interested. You might be really triggered by what the person or your constituency is saying or your boardroom or your community is saying, but can you let go of your attachment to a particular outcome, a trajectory, and go, okay, so tell me more. What are you really thinking or feeling? And she's heard them say, we're not interested in this material trajectory only. There's something more about what makes us 
as human beings this gift that we have now squandered, right? So how can we come back to these innate human values? And she speaks about kindness, empathy, and compassion and connection as now being put to the top of the political agenda and that it's not about being fluffy or woolly, it's about being really pragmatic together with really doing the rigorous research and policy and both and let's find ways to be treating one another in a different way. So the assumption that, oh yeah, that's the soft stuff. Well, actually, if we could all be finding ways to return to what we all know. So it sounds like these lofty ideals, but actually returning to the simple human, human values. Mm. Mm. And the how, right? The, the how to do that. So I think by having her talking about a well-being budget, that's, she, that's, a, that's a very big action, right? Because you can get a little cynical and go, oh, yes, lovely. Nice to have those values, but how's that going to translate? Yes, yeah. I love that. Mm. Mm. It's amazing to have someone like the Prime Minister of New Zealand doing that. What environmental factors do we need to create an environment that will enable a thinking environment? Do you understand what I'm yes. trying to get at? Like, is actually creating a thinking environment, but how can we create opportunities for more people to embrace a thinking environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, thankfully, it, it's something we can create right now. Like, right now, you're creating a thinking environment for me because of the way that you are treating me. You're treating me as though I have something of value to share and that's encouraging me to keep going in my thinking and not feel that I'm in a presentation mode and have to be the expert. So we can do that with each person that we meet to treat mm. them as though they have something fascinating that needs to be shared with the world and we can do that with somebody we're sitting next to on the train. Just We don't have to say anything. We could just make eye contact. We could do that with our neighbor the sense of disconnection that people feel in this very privileged, privileged country, the financial well-being of most people, I know not everybody, is not really reflecting the story of the impoverishment of the soul that people feel because of disconnection. And so to, to be making more eye contact if that feels appropriate for you Mm. to be in the workplace encouraging everyone to have an equal turn in the meeting not as a are we going to impose everybody gets an equal turn in that way it's not an imposition it's a gosh I really am curious to hear what you think Mm. about this agenda item and we'll all have an opportunity to do that and as I invite you to provide your input, I'm going to listen to you in a way which is going to say, gosh, that's, that's interesting. Continue. Keep going. So that encouragement that I spoke about earlier, because you can invite people to um, let's all have an equal turn, and the way you're treating them is incongruent with, oh, I read this fabulous Nancy Klein book, and she said you each have to have a turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's about our way of being with one another, that we actually do innately believe that human beings are innately kind and compassionate and intelligent. We're not 
of course, always showing up like that because of the lives that we've led or the, the conditions we've been exposed to or the limiting assumptions that we have because of the experiences we've had in our lives. But innately, if we could be treating one another as actually you are intelligent and you are kind in your heart. And if I treat you in that way, you might show up a little bit more like that than mm. you, you classically would. Yeah. Mm. As you're talking about that, I'm starting to think about some of the reasons why I might think I need to interrupt somebody. And if you don't mind, I want to just try and think about that out loud a little bit. I think it's fascinating. I wonder if some of the time I'm doing it, I'm thinking about when I've done it recently, and my initial thinking is that I did it because I wanted, I knew exactly what they were going to say and I didn't want them to waste their time saying it. I think that's one reason. There's probably something deeper beyond that that you could probably tease out a little bit. <laughs> there may be another reason where I'm afraid that in letting someone finish an idea without cutting them off that I don't agree with, that I'm endorsing that idea or it's getting airtime that I don't want it to have because I want my idea because I disagree with that idea and I think my idea should override it. Mm. There are two things that I've come up with anyway. But, yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts about the reasons why we do interrupt. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, you know, our lifetime of accumulated experiences that drive those limiting assumptions, because that's what you're talking about, you've just named them, like, actually, I know what they're going to say. Oh, no, if I don't interrupt, they'll take that as endorsing, yeah. you know, there could be any number of things, or I'm not going to look intelligent, If I, you know, often it's I need to speed this up, we're not going to get anywhere, if I don't come in, we need to you know, wrap this up and so your earlier question about, so how can we easily create thinking environments if we could just observe those limiting assumptions as they come, because they will come up, they will come up, our primitive brain, you know, just the threat, 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 it will come up, oh this person, why would I invite them to finish their thought? Let me come in and, and um, assist. <laughs> and so to observe that and then choose a different path, which would then be, okay, let's see. I'll take a deep breath and what might emerge if, if I could just let that go. And depending on your, on your style, that could feel like, pulling teeth for you to have to override your compulsion to interrupt and it will be really painful to to let that go and see what emerges in another and for others it's really liberating oh I can just exhale and let that limiting assumption go and welcome in the thinking of this this other person that I would have crashed into otherwise and so that's a really instantly applicable way to creative thinking environment is just observe our compulsion to finish one another's sentences or at the end of the spectrum crash right back you know into the middle of somebody's thinking and even we call it tailgating like not even allowing that intake of breath in between a thought and we talk about just because somebody's gone silent doesn't necessarily mean they've stopped thinking and so how counterculture is that in our meeting room you know a space 
of silence when you know, the rapid fire is considered that's a really productive brainstorming kind of meeting but what's the quality of the thinking that occurs then and it's the same 30% dominating and so to not give up on yourself if you are a serial interrupter it is something which not you one <laughs> in general not you Adam have not experienced you as a serial interrupter but if that's a strong driver for you to to really be gentle with ourselves and trust that it is something that we can learn and the way that you do that is to get really curious about what is this person going to say next even if you radically disagree like the example you gave of what but I might be then endorsing what they saying get really curious where are they going to end up because obviously if you interrupt them you're never going to know where they would have ended up so we always advise getting really 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 interested is a good practice mm. not only in what they're saying but in what they're going to say next is the way to yeah cultivate that mm. i've noticed in another setting other than the one i described where we had a thinking environment style discussion in a meeting so we had a question we published some material before the meeting and people had a chance to digest it and read through it and then we had a question about that material so it wasn't like a you know a powerpoint presentation that we did people had already read it i gave a brief presentation which was just off the cuff and then we had a question and it really was i mean it just naturally happened like we had a quite formal in that setting like we said everyone's got 3 minutes to talk and share their thoughts about this question and we had people from all parts of the organization there and it was with the ability to interrupt taken away it was liberating for the speakers but also as a listener because i knew that everyone was going to get a turn and they would they had their time and i could concentrate on them without thinking about what i was going to say or where the meeting was going because i already kind of knew in terms of the structure of the meeting and it naturally just engendered this curiosity in me and what each person had to say because they were also coming from such a different point of view and they were influenced by each other but it wasn't a group think kind of influence it was a uh, that's inspired me to think of something else mm. as well so yeah that was uh that was excellent mm. Mm. yes so an example of setting very simple yet explicit intentions for how you will I'm hearing that you shared the information ahead of time that would usually be kind of done in a present a powerpoint presentation in the meeting so people had an opportunity to digest the information beforehand they were invited and explicitly told that they would each have a turn in the meeting to respond to that and there was a specific question that they were going to respond to in relation to that information um rather than using the time in the meeting to do the death by powerpoint piece and you have this room full of intelligent human beings and you spend most of it one person talking at the group rather than igniting and drawing on the the wisdom in the room so i love that that's how you designed that meeting and and that it was so useful for them to they felt 
inspired to look at the material as opposed to, oh God, <laughs> let's wing it in the meeting, which is our, I don't know about you, but my usual response if I'm not encouraged and invited around, oh, you're, here's a particular question we want you to be thinking about as you read that information. And then, gosh, you're going to be invited to, to share your precious thinking around that. And I also like what you're saying about you got to have new thoughts ignited by listening to them in that particular way. So we talk about the so these elements of, of thinking around the 10 components then dance together. They provide the components for you as they listen to you and then from you and you provide the components for them as they each took a turn. And then more intelligence emanates from them infusing you. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I wish I was there. <laughs> Something you said a little bit earlier and I've noticed about meetings in general as they're generally run is that tailgating and slamming over the top. And in many ways, the way meetings are run at the moment, that is necessary to get somebody's thought actually in. And I think my take is that a lot of people are seen as being non-contributors or afraid to speak up or shy or not confident because of that. Mm. And in fact, they might actually be a little bit more considerate and thoughtful and patient. But the culture of the meeting is such that they're seen as something different to that and they can't get any word in. So I'm interested in what, and I'm probably more on, generally more on that side of things where generally in a general meeting, I find it hard. I really have to make an effort to say, I have to wait, I'm going to listen and I'm going to anticipate when that person is going to finish talking yeah. and I'm going to jump in so that I can say what I need to say. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm not going to get in what I need to say because somebody else is going to jump in just before me. So I'm curious mm-hmm. about what you might yeah, what you might say to people who are more on that end of the spectrum yeah. where the culture hasn't quite change to one of equality and divergent thinking and diversity. Yeah. Well, I would firstly encourage encouragement for themselves. So the give and by encouragement in this context we mean giving courage to be yourself to go a little further than you usually would. And by that I don't mean by crashing into the thinking of, of others and interrupting. I'm imagining what what would it take to request? Could we experiment or prototype um, seeing what would happen if we each took a turn on just one agenda item for this meeting and if we systematically did that? So by that I mean everybody gets, gets to speak once before anybody gets to speak twice and we know the direction that we're going to go in and... You know, for some people that would might sound excruciating. And for others, it is, oh, thank God, I know when I'm going to get my turn, right? Like the scenario you've said. And appreciate that a lot of cultures that might seem completely of the wildest, most um, 
yeah, resistance causing idea. And what if they said, oh, okay, let's, let's give it a whirl. Cause my assumption is also that people who are running the meetings in this way are also in their heart of hearts wanting the quality of the meetings to be better. And it's just that little tweak of, okay, actually the group does each want to have a turn and this isn't going to be an imposition. People often say to me, oh, it must be so hard. It must be, you know, you must get a lot of pushback from introducing these radical ways of being. Oh, actually, no. Most human beings really enjoy being listened to and if they're the one or two 30% of the room who are used to speaking all the time, have a look around the room and see, oh, okay, everybody else is, seems to be getting a lot of, out of this. Let me give it a whirl. And, and so people create the components for one another. It's not, so the limiting assumption like, oh, actually it's gonna be met with a lot of resistance. So that would be my, in my experience, recommendation to those of us who, I include myself, those of us who feel we have to interrupt others to get a, a word in, just say, I'm noticing that the same voices are, are speaking throughout the meeting. Would it be possible to just hear from everybody what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be excellent. Mm. And in the short experience I've had where I've been able to influence that in meetings, people have loved it. Mm. The feedback has been overwhelmingly so positive and mm. the thinking has been excellent as well. Like it's been obvious what's emerging from the group. Mm. And the good thinking is recognised rather than the thoughts of the few powerful or vocal. Mm. It's, it's a reminder for me as well that to gently, perhaps even gently introduce the idea, like you said, like how about in one of these agenda items we all have a turn and talking about it without interrupting each other and mm. everybody having a turn before someone talks twice. Like that's... It's a very gentle way of introducing yeah. an idea and then people can see for themselves if it's beneficial or not. Mm. So, yeah, I really like them. Mm. Mm. And it's a balance of what we call fully independent thinking and exchange thinking. So our world is dominated by you say something, I say something, you say something, I kind of listen to what you're saying and then I and preparing, listening to reply and back and forth we go in this attempt to think together but it's really two people talking, not two people thinking or a meeting, it's a, yeah, people talk about a talk fest it's not really accessing everybody's fully independent thinking and we also do need to have exchange thinking in a meeting so to have a combination of what we call rounds where everybody gets to speak once before anybody speaks twice and then alternate that with a more kind of open dialogue and say, when, what do you think and what do I think and have more of a conversation. But to have that boundaried space, and it, can, it doesn't have to take longer. It can be each person might have a minute each in that round, but they've be, their thinking's been, been honoured for a minute. And if you run out of time in a meeting and there's a really big topic that you'd love everybody to have an opportunity to think about, you can break them into pairs, listening pairs, but not the kind of listening pairs we, we've all experienced in some workshop form or another, 
um, which sounds more like everyday exchange thinking kind of conversation. It's really listening to somebody without interruption for at least two minutes, preferably longer. But if that is all you've got in those two minutes, that person will show up more intelligently than they ever have because of how you're treating them and that, because they know you're not going to interrupt. So first port of call, no matter what, you're not going to interrupt them. And what's better for them is knowing that they're not going to get interrupted. So the person who's doing the thinking, by knowing that the contract from the listener is that they're not going to interrupt you, you have 70% or more of your brain available. Mm. And you can do that for two minutes each way, so that's four minutes out of your meeting, and then come back to your meeting and have a sound bite from each person on what's their kernel of thinking around that topic. Mm. So, nifty little ways. Yeah. Mm. Can you talk about an example where you've seen a real, uh, like a, any, I guess a shift that's moved you in how profound and how amazing it has been in bringing some of these ideas to an organization or a group? Mm. Some organizations where we've gone in have you know, done the, the kind of nightmare presentation, you know, the, the levels of toxicity here are you know, through the roof, it's going to be your worst your worst case scenario ever, you know, people are in such bad shape, people are treating each other so badly, there's, there's no hope, there's the kind of scenario, and what we've discovered, like I said earlier, is that human beings know how to do this really, really well, innately, and so even in the most toxic environments where people have been through multiple disciplinary processes and it's yeah the relationships have completely broken down when given the space to be reminded we always say we're not here to teach you anything new but to remind you and a return to the the heart wisdom in those spaces is almost more well it is more dramatic to see because of where people are are coming from it's a complete breakdown and then being able to go oh well actually I do remember how to be in relationship and that that's going to profoundly impact how we are performing um, rather than leaving themselves at the door and just check in so the most memorable have been yes in the, the most seemingly toxic and broken spaces because you see these incredible human beings show up um, with their own innate intelligence around how they, what's going to work best for their particular context and writing new scripts. You just, yeah, <laughs> astonishing. Really? Yeah. It's, it's almost as though we sometimes need to be brought to our knees, which I'd at a collective global level right now, for me, it feels like we are on our knees as a civilization. And what are we going to remember as these beautiful clients have remembered in the darkest... Yeah, they've described themselves as being in a dark hole. And I'd say 
what are we going to choose and remember mm. in order to respond right now? That's yeah. That idea of remembering, I think, it resonates with me anyway. And even thinking about remembering how we want to communicate and want to connect with each other, and also how we want to connect with here we are now in a in a park. And I think remembering that part of us, like where we actually evolved from, and how close to land we used to live which seems to be something we've forgotten and want to deny and sterilize ourselves from and I think part of coming to our knees like you're talking about is remembering that and hopefully there's that that means the role of indigenous cultures becomes more and more prominent Hmm. in our world I'm thinking of Australia in particular and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and the ongoing connection that they've had with this place and the wisdom that they can bring to reminding all of us of those kind of things as well. Yeah. Absolutely. The Indigenous Aboriginal culture has been steeped in deep listening practice for millions of, of years and this is part of that choice to use the word remembering because it's not teaching anything new. These are ancient of many indigenous cultures but the fact that we're here in Australia to be able to access this wisdom and what are the choices that we're making to do that or not to do that or to actively be negating or destroying that wisdom rather than remembering and drawing on that. The, the choices we're making and this week I saw a friend share, she's based in Canberra, she shared um, her experience of sitting with um, an Aboriginal listening circle in Canberra and they had shared that Australia has the potential to usher in as a global collective, to show us as a global collective the way through in terms of the ancient ancient wisdom and this was the same week that the Prime Minister of New Zealand was making her announcement and then the friend wrote this about this Canberra listening circle and you know that didn't make news did it because wise elders pronouncing that this is a resource we have available here. We have wisdom that can help us navigate. No, that won't make the headlines. Mm. So for us, we don't need headlines, right, to inspire us to be treating one other person next door to us as having indigenous wisdom, their own internal indigenous wisdom. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. I've got one last question for you <laughs> as we do wrap up. Pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about coming back to the theme of the podcast and how it might apply to your own life. So the idea of subtle disruption being small changes that are accessible to everybody but can have 
an important and profound and ongoing impact. And I'm wondering what some kind of subtle disruption you practice or you've experienced in your own life that's had an important impact at one point in time or continues to have an impact for you? Mm. Gosh, so many. I wouldn't have described them probably as subtle disruption. I think of the spiritual path that I've been following for the last 15 years feels like a, a radical yet subtle act of disruption to be sitting in silence and going into the love in our hearts as a act of service to the world or who knows if that might be a, a fantasy that I have. I don't know if I'm in service to anything but I have the assumption that giving space to connect with the silence in my heart is is a radical form of activism in a world which does not invite us to be in silence but to be in the fray <laughs> Candice thank you for taking the time I appreciate you sharing so openly Thank you, Adam. It's been a profoundly beautiful experience to have you as my thinking partner. <laughs> thinking and feeling. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests in this show. If you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now. <laughs>